0: The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are solely those of the individuals participating in the show and do not represent those of Tenderfoot TV and Resonate Recordings. All individuals described or mentioned in the podcast should be considered innocent until found guilty in a court of law. This podcast contains subject matter such as violence and graphic descriptions, which may not be suitable for all audiences. Listener discretion is advised.
1: I believe my sister was killed on a personal agenda. My sister did nothing wrong. She never, you know, no drugs, no jail, no crimes. She literally, the only passion in her life was family and her daughter. So how do you take a passionate mom that only lives through their family and then all of a sudden try to pin it up in a murder case? It doesn't work without a personal agenda. So someone benefited off her death, and I think that was the whole point of it. I think that that person saw what could be or what they could have and gain from Britney's death, and I think they took advantage of it. ¶¶
0: September of 2022, my producer Jessica was checking her social media accounts when she noticed a new Facebook group that Brittany's sister, Emily created. Emily was Brittany's younger sister. She was 12 when the murder happened. Jessica joined her group and her feed was flooded with years of pictures and different memories that Emily had been steadily posting. If you remember back at the beginning of this podcast, when we spent an entire day with the Dodson family and stayed for Brittany's vigil that night, We actually spoke with Emily, though very briefly. I think she was a little caught off guard that day. The Dotsons had told us about how the kids all dealt with their sister's death in their own way, none of them really wanting to talk about it. So when Jessica saw that Emily was posting memories of Brittany, she reached out and asked if she'd be willing to talk. And Emily was more than willing. In her own words, she was ready. She told us the story behind the social media page that Jessica had seen.
1: So, me and one of Brittany's high school friends, her name's Taryn, you know, we had kind of been talking, and she's like, you know, Brittany's death anniversary is coming up, and she's like, has your mom and dad talked in the news or anything? And I was like, girl, none of them have called. Not a one of the news crews have called. Not the sheriff's department. And she was like, well, she's like, I think we should do something about it. And I was like, yeah, you know what, I think you're right.
0: It frustrated Emily to see the news coverage dwindle over the years to the point that it seemed like the only coverage was when there'd be a milestone, like the last blitz at the five-year mark. She said nine years isn't as special, but she imagines the media will be at the vigil next year when it hits 10 years. And it was in this realization that she had the thought, why not start talking about it herself?
1: So I made a post on Facebook not thinking that it was going to you know, go as viral as it did, It got shared as far as California, and there was over 2,000 shares on this post that I had made. And, you know, in the post, I just said, hey, you know, I'm Brittany's sister, and, you know, we had this close bond that nobody really projects that what an impact she had in everyone's life that she really did touch.
0: She sold that a little short. Here's what it actually said. My sister is Brittany Stikes. Nine years ago, she was murdered in Brown County, Ohio, and her daughter Aubrey was shot in the head. Aubrey pulled through and is doing great. My family has two days out of the year when we ask for everyone to get together to remember my sister and bring awareness to her case, in hopes of not only remembering her and who she was, but to also remind the local law enforcement, among others, that we have not given up on solving her case. My sister and family deserve to have some peace of mind and justice. For nine years, we've held candlelight services and balloon releases, and for nine years, the amount of people that come out to support all of us has decreased. I know that time goes by and people move on, but days like today for my family, it still hurts like the very day it happened. Brittany impacted our lives in so many ways. She was an amazing person and my best friend. Brittany may be gone. But her love is still all around, each and every one of us. In a book I read my freshman year of high school, it said, Love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. That quote has stuck with me all this time because I know that even though my sister is in heaven, she's still loving me and present in everything I do. I just reached out to you in hopes to have some prayers for my family. Today, August 28th, makes nine years since my sister, who was pregnant, was murdered. Every day is hard, but today especially. We still have no answers. I'm reaching out to anyone that will listen. For Emily, it wasn't just about getting Brittany's case out there in the public eye. It was about getting Brittany's story out there. After all, she lived a very meaningful 22 years before that fatal August night.
1: Aubrey's 10 years old and she doesn't even know what happened to her mom. Here I am, I have my little boys getting ready to turn four and I have a baby that's getting ready to turn one and they don't know their aunt. You know, she had a big, a big impact on me and my personality and just who I am. And I don't feel that that should have been forgotten.
0: Her friend Taryn had an idea. What if they start a memorial page? The one Jessica found online. The idea behind it was everyone has their own memories of Brittany, their own photos of her, their own things to say. Like that slowly dwindling vigil held each year, they could make a new place where people could come together to remember Brittany.
1: My sister definitely had a laugh and a smile that was very, very infectious, and she was loud and always outgoing and happy. She was one of those people that if she seen you were having a bad day, she would try her damnedest to make you laugh just to make your day a little easier. My sister always made sacrifices for me.
0: Emily says Brittany did a little bit of everything for her. She taught her how to tie her shoes, made sure she brushed her teeth every night, and read her a book before bed. All those motherly instincts we talked about at the beginning of all this. But that continued all the way through Emily's pre-teen years, though it of course looked a little different.
1: It was funny because when I hit 12, she was like, You know, hey, six months, you're going to be a teenager, and I think we need to teach you the teenage stuff. And I was like, what? And she's like, we're going to take you in here, and we're going to teach you how to do your makeup and your nails and your hair. And she was like, we're going to dress you up, and we're going to go out. And she did that kind of stuff with me all the time. Like, she literally was my best friend. And the older I got, the closer we got, and then she was gone.
0: The sisters were closer than ever at ages 22 and 12, Now, Emily is 22, the same age Brittany was when her life was taken. But back then, they did everything together, all year round. Summers were extra special. Emily would spend literally the whole summer over at Brittany and Shane's house. And when summer came to an end, things didn't change much.
1: Even when I was back in school, she'd be like, it's all right, just bring your homework and come to the house. And she'd sit there and cook dinner and I'd sit at her dining room table and she'd help me do my homework. She really did impact me in so many ways. And I remember when I hit 12, I was going through that awkward state where I was like, Brittany, I really am, you know, I really am chubby. And she was like, so? She's like, I'm chubby too, but I'm still going to eat. She's like, I don't care. She said, there ain't nothing wrong. And she said, you know, if somebody loves you, they're going to love you for who you are in your size. It doesn't matter what you weigh or, you know, how big your boobs are or what it is. She's like, they're going to love you for you. You might not be pretty to everybody, but you're going to be perfect to somebody. That was just her thing. She just always wanted me to feel like I was perfect. And even if I did have faults, she wanted me to know that it was okay.
0: They'll love you for you. Profound words. Interestingly, it was around this same time that Brittany herself found love, when she and Shane started dating. Another reason we felt it imperative we talk with Emily, because as she said, she was with Brittany all the time. And therefore, she was around Shane all the time. She had somewhat of a window into their lives, one which others didn't have. And she paid attention.
1: They definitely didn't have this loving relationship. It started off that way, and then it kind of unfolded, and true colors were shown. So, a lot of the time, Brittany was there by herself. It was usually, like, me, Brittany, and Aubrey, and then... Shane's two step kids and my brother stayed there a lot too but then him and Shane kind of had a little issue with each other so he quit going there he didn't really like what all was going on he didn't agree with it so Tanner kind of parted ways with it and stopped going as often so most of the time it was just me and Brittany kind of hanging out at the house with each other
0: okay but that's not all that bad and it doesn't explain what she means by true colors being shown but as she continued, she eventually expanded on that.
1: Pretty much what it boils down to is they, they argued a lot, like Shane drank a lot. Shane is very cocky, so when he drinks, he gets very loud and cocky and just kind of runs his mouth, and they'd get in little arguments and little spats and stuff. There was just always little incidents. But it's also one of those things when you have a child with somebody, you want to try to work it out because that's, that's the kid's dad. You, you want the kid's dad to be in their life. But I think a point came where she just thought that enough was enough and she was ready to get out.
0: Emily reminded us of the weeks leading up to the murder, starting with a story we'd heard from both Brittany's friend Samantha and her mom Mary a while back.
1: Well, it started off We was actually all here. They had gotten to an argument early in the day and Brittany was like, come on, I'm not dealing with this, I'm not doing this, I'm not going to sit here and argue with him over it over the kids and money and not want to come home. I'm not doing it. She's like, we'll just go to mom and dad's cause I'm not doing this. So me and Aubrey and Brittany all got in the Jeep and we came out here and Shane was texting her. And I'm not sure what the text had said, but she got like upset, like very, very upset. And she looked at mom and dad and she goes, I'm gonna call him and see what he says. And he told her, well, why don't you just get your fucking shit and get out of my house? And she was like, but we have a baby together. And he goes, well, I guess I'll fucking pay child support. Brittany was like, you know what? If that's his attitude about it, then I'm going to go tell him that he's going to be paying child support on two more kids.
0: At the time, she just learned she was pregnant with her second child. This was obviously before she went home and broke the news to Shane. But Brittany, being a woman of her word, went and did just that. If you remember from Samantha and Mary's accounts... She supposedly called them both that night, crying over how he'd reacted to the news. And you might also remember hearing about how he changed his tune the very next day.
1: She's like, well, he, now all of a sudden he's excited and he wants this baby and all of a sudden he says he's going to change and everything's going to get better and I just don't understand it. She's like, how do you go from you can't stand me and you never wanted to be with me anyways and you don't want any more kids to... Now we're gonna be this loving family and have this great relationship. And we got back to her house and she was like, don't say anything. She was like, just act cool, it'll be all right. So we got there and like Shane was trying to play around with her and love on her and stuff. And she just kept kind of giving me looks. And eventually it was probably 11 o'clock. So we got up the next morning and Shane had left for work and she goes, "I, I can't do this. And I was like, what do you mean you can't do this? And she was like, I don't want Aubrey seeing her parents fight and hate each other all the time. I can't do that. She's like, so what we're going to do is we're going to get up this morning and I've got totes in the closet. She's like, go get the totes out and we're going to slowly start boxing all my stuff up and leave. So we started boxing her stuff up and she's like, when Shane gets home tonight and he asks about it, you just tell him that we're cleaning and we're boxing up some old stuff to get rid of and donate. And I was like, all right, that's fine. And then two weeks went by and... She was gone.
0: This is obviously never set right with Emily. It didn't as she helped her sister pack her things, and it definitely didn't two weeks later, on the night of August 28th, 2013. While Emily was at her parents' home, slowly learning the news of her sister's murder, Shane hadn't been notified yet. As reported in the Brown County Sheriff's Office narrative, when the murder occurred, Shane was supposedly at a private gym in Decatur, power source gym, to be specific. Later that night, Shane shared his alibi with then Deputy Chief John Shadle. Shadle left the Brown County Sheriff's Office in 2015. He says things had gotten a little political there. And in his own words, he doesn't play those silly games. He felt it was time to seek greener pastures and he found it years later, about 20 minutes outside of Brown County, in Felicity, Ohio, where he ended up coming out of retirement to become their police chief. But the reason we wanted to speak with Chief Shadel is back in the years following Brittany's death, he did play somewhat of a role in her case. While it was mostly from a distance as far as the investigation goes, many times he was the face and voice of the Brown County Sheriff's Office and the media. So he's definitely not clueless when it comes to this case. But the other reason we wanted to speak with Shadle is that on the night of the murder, he and another deputy were the ones tasked with breaking the news to Shane. In other words, they were with him that night.
2: Larry Meyer and I went to his residence and I spoke with him and, you know, gave him the bad news and that type of thing. But it was within probably a couple of hours of us arriving on scene, taping everything off and making an idea of her he had an appropriate reaction i i felt i mean he obviously he there for a few minutes he really went to pieces and uh you know wanted to know how the the little one was that type of thing and i give him all the information talked to him a while and got him calmed down he answered all my questions appropriately because i asked him you know is there anybody that you're having trouble with that would have thought maybe you were driving the jeep and it was you know somebody misidentified the driver thinking it was you and you know And he told me he wasn't having any problems with anybody and so on and so forth. But, um, you know, at that point, I mean, you always look at family members as a a first suspect, but he didn't give any indication that he had any involvement in it. Actually, there should be, if you've got the report and everything, my supplement to that report should have had that information. Larry Meyer might be able to help you on that. Now, as I recall, after Detective Moore, Interviewed him, he felt like he had knowledge of what was going on. More than just, you know, I'm at home and I don't know anything about it. But at that point, I was off not working that case. So I really, you know, he would be a guy that you could talk to if he's talked to you.
0: Former Deputy Moore wouldn't agree to sit down with us, but we spoke with Sergeant Carlson about it and he came back and said that we could email our questions to Moore. We've done so and are awaiting a reply. Something we hope Moore can verify for us is Shane's alibi from that night. But in the meantime, Chief Shadle did know a little about it from working with Moore.
2: He wasn't real keen on the alibi that he had, even though there was a couple people supposed to have been with him. uh, They were of questionable character.
0: Now, Shadle isn't firm on all the names from the gym that night, but one of the men he was able to name was former Aberdeen police chief Greg Cottle, now, Cottle has somewhat of an interesting past, even if by chance. I'll explain why. Cottle became the Aberdeen chief of police in September of 2012, when he filled a vacancy left by his predecessor, Clark Gast. Now, Gast is actually tied to another high-profile case out of Brown County, Ohio, that happened in August of 2012, which for reference was one month before Greg Cottle took his position, and a couple weeks before Brittany's murder. But on August 12, 2012, Clark Gast came home to find his wife, Laura, dead, hanging from a ceiling fan. A year later, her death was ruled a suicide, and for a while this appeared to be the end of that story. But then two years later, in August of 2015, Gast was arrested, though not in relation to his wife's death. Instead, he was facing charges of domestic abuse. Laura Gast's 10-year-old daughter at the time had taken photos of her mother, depicting evidence of physical abuse, such as bruising on and around her face and neck. Investigators were able to trace these photos back to August 11th, 2013, just one day before Laura Gast was found hanging in the couple's Aberdeen home.
1: Aberdeen's former police chief, Clark Gast, was found guilty of one count of domestic abuse.
0: Now, Clark Gast is not one of the guys who were at the Power Source gym the night of August 28, 2013. But I share this because of his tie to Greg Cottle, who is said to be one of Shane's witnesses from that night. When Greg Cottle took over Clark Gass' position as police chief of Aberdeen, he would end up leading the investigation into Laura Gass's death when it occurred a year later, in August of 2013. Interestingly, it was the Brown County Sheriff's Office who eventually took over that case from Cottle and the Aberdeen Police Department and ended up bringing forth the charges of domestic abuse. Like his predecessor, Chief Cottle's tenure, leading the Aberdeen Police Department, would also be short-lived. While it seemed like in the news at the time that his firing was tied in some way to a conflict of interest, investigating Gast's crimes back in 2013, Cottle actually ended up losing his job for an entirely different reason, related to residency and work attendance.
2: Caudill was at the center of two I-team investigations, one focusing on a conflict of interest after the former police chief's wife was found hanged and Caudill led the investigation. The other, a police officer, fired after blowing the whistle on Chief Caudill's second job. But the mayor says that has nothing to do with why he's trying to fire his police chief. He says that Chief Caudill never moved into the village of Aberdeen as required by Ohio law. And more importantly, he hasn't shown up for work since April 11th. Greg Cottle grew up here in
0: Aberdeen, but right now he lives Greg Cottle was removed by the Aberdeen Village Council in a 5-0 vote on June 2, 2014. When we asked former Brown County Chief Shadle why he questions Cottle's character, he says that as an officer, he was someone who couldn't figure out what side of the fence he wanted to be on. He didn't go into much detail on that, but I imagine it relates to his past as chief of Aberdeen. In Brittany's case, there's no telling what all he knows, or what he's told officers, for that matter. But it doesn't change the fact that in Shadel's eyes, Brittany's case should have been solved a long time ago.
2: I think it was a solvable case from the beginning, and I'm not so sure now. I mean, let's face it, whoever did it and whoever knows about it have gotten by with it for nine years. The time to be worried and nervous is over. They're sitting back with confidence now. He may have a point.
0: But in a general sense, it's best to try and reach out to anyone whose name comes up during the course of an investigation. And in this case, one name that Shadle was able to give, which we'd never heard before, was Greg Coddle. And at the least, it sounds like one thing Cottle should be able to verify for us is Shane's alibi from the night of August 28th. So we reached out to him and had some luck. It was very brief, but helpful nonetheless. Here's what he had to say.
2: Well there was like six cops that we was all in there working out, he just happened to be in the gym working out at the same time. Yeah, he was definitely in there. It was like between six and eight o'clock at night. Are you friends with him? I mean acquaintance, I'm not I wouldn't call myself friends. I've never been around him other than seeing him in the gym. Let's feel like okay. that. Was Clark Gast in there? No. Clark Gast don't work out, no. And he's not he's not friends with Shane either, though. No, no, he's never even met Shane, as far as I know. I mean, unless they met way before that, but no, not at all.
0: Unfortunately, that's all we got out of Greg. The main takeaway is that he does support Shane's alibi, just as he did years ago. Greg says he saw Shane at the Power Source gym the evening of August 28, 2013, putting him there at the gym at the time Brittany was murdered on Highway 68. In revisiting audio from our interview with Shane, I realized that this was something Shane talked about back at the beginning of all this. Though at the time, we didn't really make much of it, as we were in the very early stages of our investigation. Interestingly, it all started with a simple comparison that our local producer made in regards to another high-profile case out of that area, the one we just went over, the death of Laura Gast. It reminds me of
3: that Aberdeen. There was a like a police chief or someone yeah. whose wife... Okay, so that all ties into me, too. Oh, how so? Uh, He was one of my witnesses that says I was where I was at when I was there. Oh, so you know him. Yeah. I'm not a big personal friend. We just worked out at the same place. Greg Caudell is who you're talking about. Greg Caudell was the chief of police. It was the mayor's wife that come up dead. And then the Caudell guy was getting tied into that somehow. It wasn't his wife. Him and his wife got a divorce. He got fired from Aberdeen for being on the clock when he wasn't on the clock or something like that. But it was the mayor's wife who supposedly killed herself and was being investigated. And then he was getting tied into it saying he knew about it or some shit like that. He wasn't like the killer. He just knew something or something like that. Okay. But anyway, that guy was tied up in that murder investigation, and then all of a sudden they're like, well, wait a minute, he was a witness on Shane's, and they said they were trying to tie all that bullshit together.
0: When Jessica started to reference Clark Gast, though not by name, she was only able to say that Brittany's case reminds her of the case of the police chief's wife, before Shane chimed in over her, talking about how it ties into Brittany's case and ties to him personally. But then Shane went on to speak as if that case involved the mayor's wife rather than the police chief's wife, something I've never been able to confirm. But the tie-in itself does make some sense because, again, the mayor is partially responsible for firing former Chief Greg Cottle, who took over former Chief Clark Gass' position after his resignation. And in Shane's defense, Cottle was fired for basically what Shane just said. The violation was that he missed three weeks of work and then failed to communicate that to the mayor. So I'm not entirely sure why the confusion, but when I followed up with Shane, he confirmed that he was referring to Greg Cottle at the time, and he went on to explain things in a little more detail, going back over his alibi from that night.
3: At the time that this happened, I was at the gym in Decatur. You know where Decatur is? Less than 10 miles from my house, and so that's why I worked out there but so did a lot of Adams County sheriffs and cops. And so I knew a lot of these guys, you know, and uh, they just happened to be there the night that this happened. They were at the gym earlier and they all testified that I was where I said I was at. And how much more of a solid alibi does a guy have than uh, I have five or four cops telling cops... (laughs) That was where I was at. I even have a witness who was not a cop, but they did question him. And him and I were the last ones in the gym and shut the lights out and left. And it was like right, it was getting close to nine o'clock. That's when I left. I got there probably five twenty, five thirty. You know, probably quarter till six. By the time I start working out,
0: and uh, we closed the place down and shut the lights out and left. While Shane may not have the best witness to support his alibi, it's a pretty firm alibi nonetheless. And another thing that Shane has always been pretty firm on is his theory about Britney's murder. He says himself, he has nothing to make up. So let's talk about what he believes happened to Britney that night. Because as we pressed, Shane did go on to say more about the idea that Britney's murder was a message to him.
3: I was doing something good. Okay, I was doing something positive and someone didn't like that. And I can't really get too much intel, but I was doing something positive because of what I seen going on around me in my community. There was a lot of crime and I wanted to do something about that. So I did what I thought I needed to do. And I think that got under someone's skin
0: he tells us the supposed crime in his community involved drugs and drug addicts, mentioning both pills and heroin specifically, likening it all to an epidemic. They're all backroads back there,
3: okay? One lane, pull over, let somebody buy type stuff. You know, don't pull over too far, you'll go over an 80-foot drop. It's like that. But you would be going down them roads and, and all of a sudden there'd be 70 herd of cattle in the road. You know, because some tweaker friggin' cut, was cutting gates. They were stealing gates off of farmers' pastures and stuff and letting animals run and scrapping the shit because scrap was crazy high then. And scrapping the crap just to go get drugs. And it's like, man, something has to be done about this crap. I wasn't narking people out or running my mouth about people. Nothing like that. I wasn't doing anything. I was literally just looking for a new career. And, um, uh, then this happens.
0: While he didn't say specifically what the career was, one can make a pretty educated assumption. And then in a text with Shane after our interview, he did confirm that the career he was looking to get into was law enforcement. But this doesn't really explain why Brittany would have been killed as a result of this. He says he was hoping to stop crime involving countless addicts in his area, but as it pertains to Brittany, we're looking for one maybe two suspects. So who exactly would have been that offended over this to then go and murder Shane's wife? I mean, no disrespect,
3: but I would rather not talk about who. And that's just out of respect for everybody all the way around, you know what I'm saying? I don't want to be a finger pointer, I just don't. I'll tell you vaguely, I think that it was no, I'm sorry. I don't want to I don't want to do that. I'll
0: just I'm going to take the high road on that, guys. So, no luck on a name. But as a reminder, Shane had previously told us a little bit about this person. Here's what he said.
3: I don't know anything about this dude's personal life except for one thing, and it's not like I'm the only person in the world that knew this. Everyone knew this, okay? So that's all I got to say about that. What do you say to that person? Hmm. You got you ready to hit that beep thing, man? I got some editing I'm gonna need done here. Uh, there's nothing I could say they don't already know. He knows he's a low life. He knows he's a coward. He knows he's a piece of shit, and that's all he's ever been and ever will be. So, what what could I say? Nothing. You better pray I don't ever get terminal cancer or some shit.
0: So you're confident, in
3: huh? I've been confident from day two, buddy.
0: So if you've given them that, why isn't there to arrest them?
3: Man, it's I mean I mean you think you look at it from a cop's point of view, I mean there's spent bullets, there's no casings, no fingerprints, no DNA. What can you do?
0: Do you know if they've interrogated, polygraphed all those things to that person the same way they have you?
3: I've heard that they have put pressure on said person or whatever, but I don't, I can't confirm any of that. I know as much as you all do, okay? I mean, I know maybe a little bit more, but I can't tell anybody nothing. so.
0: Well, while we're on the subject, since you know that person, should we be concerned about them finding or doing a podcast about this?
3: Be prepared, that's all I can tell you. I'm prepared. you know what I'm saying. Anybody who wants to come here and mess around with my family. well man, they are hating life. That's all I can say i mean i'm gonna I'm gonna die for these children, so better bring it big if you're gonna bring it. That's all I can tell.
0: Another thing you may remember Shane telling us a while back is that he's of the belief that the morning road rage incident that Brittany was involved in ties to her murder, which occurred later that evening. And in telling us this, he also made some comments related to that morning road rage incident, ones which didn't carry nearly the same amount of weight then as they do now. I'll explain why in a moment. I want to circle back real quick. You just made a comment before that about, you know what you want out of this and like somebody to speak up if they yeah. know something yeah. do, you f- do you feel like there are others out there who know with the same confidence you do like who who's done this
3: I would think so like,
0: are you of the belief that there are a person or people out there who are holding on to some information that could
3: there was two people involved in the morning road rage incident okay so, there's somebody that knows something. That's all I can say. There's at least one person that knows something of a female gender. You're saying there's two people involved in the other vehicle, not two, including Brittany. Right. I'm talking about in the vehicle that, where the road rage thing happened, there was
0: two people in that car. How did you learn that? Through the text message. He's talking about the text message Brittany sent her friend Samantha just after the incident. When we spoke with Samantha about the text, she wasn't able to remember it in great detail. She just told us that Brittany was angry and said some guy in a van ran her off the road. And we actually followed up with Sergeant Quinn Carlson about the text, but he too wasn't able to offer much insight. He wouldn't share the physical text with us. And when pressed as to why he wouldn't, he just told us that she uses some vulgar language in it and he wants to protect her character. I guess that's understandable. But Shane says that he heard there were two people in that vehicle that morning. And overall, he did seem to know a little more about the situation than what we'd heard so far. And it said, like, ran off the road, and a guy in a effing
3: C-U-N-T, you know? And my wife did not talk like that. It must have been a serious altercation for my wife to be that upset to talk like that because she didn't do that, you know. I heard... The only thing I heard about the altercation is I heard about two different makes and models of vehicles. One vehicle was on the scene at the time of the incident speeding away. Another vehicle was described in the altercation, okay? They were two different vehicles, but the two vehicles that were described, my original story had similar vehicles to both.
0: So Shane also heard that there were two different vehicles described in the morning incident, one which was seen speeding away from the scene, and another which is believed to be the one that was involved in the incident. The only one we know of was the vehicle involved in the morning incident, that being a gray van. But Shane says that both vehicles he heard about were similar to vehicles driven by the unnamed person he believes to be responsible for the murder.
3: So, do you think it's possible that the morning was attempt one at sending a message and it didn't quite... I don't know. I don't know. That's why I don't want to point fingers at crap because I, don't, I, can't, I can't put it all together. You know what I mean? I don't know if that was the case or was my wife's murder retaliation of whatever happened between her and that person. Maybe, I, maybe I'm not even freaking involved and that's why I don't want to point them fingers. You see what I'm saying? Maybe it doesn't involve me. I'm just saying that in my life, everything I can ever think of that I've ever done, that would be the only scenario that I could come up with if it does involve me. But, you know, if there was some private life of my wife or her family, or I wouldn't know anything about any of that. You know, I don't know that. I don't think that my wife was doing anything wrong or bad. I, I don't. I, I have no suspicions of any foul play in that area, you know? I don't know, man.
0: Did Brittany know your unnamed person?
3: Not personally, but, but she yeah. she would
0: have recognized them if they were in a road rage incident.
3: I don't know. I don't know about that.
0: It seems like if you recognize the person, you'd probably go ahead and give that detail to your friend if you're...
3: Correct, them. correct. I don't think that... Because it had been like... She knew him when she was younger or whatever, and I don't know if she would have recognized, you know, I don't know. But she knew of it. There was. She knew,
0: yeah, everybody in that area knew. Everybody in the area knew. What does that even mean? I can name one person seated right beside me during this interview who didn't have a clue who he could be talking about, and she's lived practically her entire life in the area. Not to mention... She has a background in investigative journalism. If anyone should know who he's talking about here, it would be Jessica. All in all, Shane says he's passed along everything he knows to authorities. There's really nothing else he can do. It's in their hands now. All he can do is focus on his life and hope that justice will be served in due time.
3: No matter who it is, it's gonna be, my prayers are answered, so it's gonna be a glorious day but it's gonna be sprinkled with a little bit better if it's exactly what I said it was. The only good thing is I get to walk out of this knowing that I told the truth about everything the whole time. And I don't have to have any shame, guilt, fear, nothing. I don't have to have any of that on my shoulders. The only reason that I spend so much time thinking that it involves me is because why else would they have been hammering on me? Why would I have been such an interest if it didn't involve me? And I can only come up with one thing that it accomplished. Got me out of that county.
0: Culpable is a production of Resonate Recordings and Tenderfoot TV in conjunction with Cadence 13, written and hosted by me, Dennis Cooper, and produced by Jessica Knoll. Executive producers are myself, Mark Minnery, Jacob Bozarth, Donald Albright, and Payne Lindsey. Our senior producer is John Street. Additional production by Todd McComas. Editing, mixing, mastering, and sound design by Dayton Cole, Pat Kicklighter, Adam Townsell, and Caleb Melcher of the Resonate Recordings team. If you have a podcast or are looking to start one, check us out at resonaterecordings.com. Our theme song and original score is by Dirt Poor Robbins, with additional scoring by Dayton Colt. Our cover art is by Drew Bardana. Sources used in this episode include The Ledger Independent, WCPO, and WLWT. You can follow us on social media at culpable Podcasts. Show notes, as well as bonus content, can be found on our website, culpablepodcast.com. If you enjoyed this episode, please take time to subscribe, rate, and review. Your feedback is greatly appreciated. And lastly, if you have any information about the murder of Brittany Stikes, we urge you to contact the Brown County Sheriff's Office by visiting their website, browncountyohiosheriff.us, where you can anonymously submit your information, or you can contact Sergeant Quinn Carlson directly at 937-378-4435, extension 130, or by email at quinncarlson@bcoso.com. at bcoso.com. You can also submit your information anonymously through our website, culpablepodcast.com. Thank you for listening.